when it comes to the feel, Crypto Winters, usually the feel is that it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal out there. If you had any clients and you still have them now, you're very lucky. Revenues are down across the board really severely and layoffs happened already. If a company didn't do layoffs, then they're completely mad and they should have done layoffs long time ago to reduce the burn and reduce the cost. This is how it feels. And that's when I reflect on it, we are in a crypto winter. If you ask me where are we in the crypto winter, I would say that we're at the beginning of a crypto winter. And the reason why I say that is because a lot of the challenges and the problems that were in the nucleus of the collapse are still trying to be unwound or resolved. You have just heard from Anton Gold, crypto serial entrepreneur and ecosystem builder. Anton founded and served as CEO of Flovtech, a Swiss market maker providing liquidity solutions to digital asset exchanges, token issuers and protocols and offering investment products for professional and institutional investors. Anton is also a co-founder of Trust Square, a preeminent blockchain technology hub located in Zurich's financial district. Previously, Anton co-founded Licky Corp, a blockchain-powered exchange to trade all assets with zero fees, where he served as a chief science officer. So let us dive right in. Welcome from Tokyo. I'm very glad today to reconnect with Anton. We haven't spoken in a while. The last time it was probably about three years ago. We did a podcast together with the same topic in a totally different environment. So welcome, Anton, and thank you in advance for taking the time. Thank you very much, Norbert, for inviting me. It's really a pleasure to be on your podcast. And indeed, it's been quite some time since we spoke and always exciting to talk to you because we have amazing discussions. And last time we had a very interesting debate around market making and hopefully make it very interesting for the listeners to learn how to survive the ongoing nuclear crypto winter. What obviously has happened to you in between when we spoke last time, you were still in the middle of the Flovtech days and you exited that in the interim. I think you're a good trader and good traders always know when to exit the position. You have very good timing in departing first from Lucke, which you co-founded and then Flowtrack. Excellent market timing, I would say. So first, yeah, thank you for the compliment. And uh, just to provide a bit of context, so yes, indeed, the first startup I co-founded together with Richard Olson, Lique, I did an exit in January 2018. It was one of the first days in January, very dark and cold and gloomy, as you can imagine, in Switzerland, when I told Richard I want to go my way. And if you recall, Bitcoin was at 20,000 back then. So I think that timing was done to perfection. But obviously, I was very lucky, right, with the timing. And then also with Flovtech, it was in summer of last year, after the Terra Luna collapse, also a fairly good uh, idea for timing, but also many times reflection what to do next when I see different opportunities arising. Then as startup founders do, we have our days when we contribute and grow with the company and then when we uh, go off and do something new. So this is how I see it. Very lucky with the timing, obviously. It was a coincidence on both occasions, to be honest. It's good to be lucky at times. You had winters before. (laughs) This does have a bit of a different feel to it, doesn't it? With Operation Choke Point in the US. What's your overall sense? And then maybe we can break this down into a regional view, because clearly the US is not the whole world. There's stuff happening in other regions as well that might be a bit more positive. When it comes to crypto winters or crypto downturns, it's also very important to understand the context. So my first crypto winter was when we actually started Lika, my first startup. 
launched the company and then a few months later Mount Gox blew up. Anybody who remembers Mount Gox, it was the biggest exchange back then with 90% of the volume. And imagine like this whole thing is explodes. It turns out it was a scam in the back or kind of that's still insinuations today. And then nobody wanted to talk to us for about a year. So that's how negative the vibe was. But also the scale was very small. The whole market cap back then was 1 billion. So just today it's 1 trillion, so 1,000 times more. Even though it was like a very rough time period, there was not much objectively back then. And I just remember that it was very difficult to raise money. It was very difficult to talk to people in the traditional finance industry. If you mention crypto, the first question would be about Silk Road, which was a marketplace for illegal activities where they used Bitcoin as a payment method. So the first question is, what about Silk Road? What about Mt. Gox? And that, that was like a very painful and not very productive discussions that we always had. So this is like the first crypto winter. The second one was in 2018, 2019, where the so-called ICO bubble blew up. So all of these companies issuing tokens back in 2017 and 18 turned out that they will not build anything, that all of your money that you supplied for the token sale was gone. You're not going to get anything. So it was like a very pessimistic period. But there was no regulatory backlash back then, as I recall. It was just a very painful period where it didn't look likely that this is going to be a big industry fairly soon. Now, you correctly say, how does it look like today? This crypto winter really, in my view, started with the Terra Luna collapse. It was a blockchain with a very popular stablecoin and it all blew up because of the design flaws or also I think many are arguing now that in the back it was not managed well as a project. But this was the first thing that sparked the crypto winter, the current one that we're going through. Next, all the hedge funds and proprietary trading firms that had exposure to Terra Luna, they all blew up. Then all the borrowing and lending platforms blew up with exposures to the hedge funds and the prop firms. Then FTX came out of nowhere, which was a big surprise for everyone. Turned out it was a complete scam. Now the next hard period for crypto industry is actually this regulatory backlash that you're talking about. And this is, in my view, exclusively a US problem because if you go around the world, things are a bit more active or more optimistic. It's very geographically driven. We are seeing this every day, how open-minded and welcoming the governments and the regulators and the communities are in the Middle East, specifically in United Arab Emirates and Dubai, Abu Dhabi. So there things are flourishing. Maybe in Europe as well, in Asia, it seems things are happening. But in US, I think it's a complete disaster what's happening now. And it's adding to the complexities and the challenges of the current ongoing nuclear crypto winter. In the crypto oasis world, they put out the ecosystem report and you had a very distinct message there and saying you're betting on the United Arab Emirates. Give us a feel for what the environment is like, why you are so positive. United Arab Emirates is really a fascinating place because when you go there, you see this an amazing cities. Dubai is spectacular, Abu Dhabi is spectacular. All of these smart, driven, motivated people, great vibe. You really feel like you're in the center of something great happening. But then you have to reflect that this was a desert and sand 20, 30 years ago. So Dubai and Abu Dhabi and UAE is actually a miracle in that context. So out of nowhere, this whole thing emerged very quickly and it's quite successful with its ups and downs over the last couple of days. So this is the context. And when you go there, what you notice very quickly is that UAE is very welcoming. They're very accommodative and they're very entrepreneurial. This is usually a good mix for smart, driven people to come and build there. Crypto is no exception to that. I think crypto is actually even specific and also even more pronounced in that sense in UAE. Given what I have just said, I would have to describe United Arab Emirates. 
It reminds me a lot of what's happening in Switzerland in 2015, 2016 in the crypto industry in Crypto Valley. Back then, if you arrived into the Crypto Valley, what you would see is that a lot of things is missing. Not a lot of service providers, not a lot of projects, kind of everything is early stage. But you had the most smartest people on the planet coming to Crypto Valley, coming to Zug, coming to Switzerland and building their projects, their companies and so on. If you go to UAE, that's exactly what you see there today. A lot of things is missing. There's an ecosystem. A lot of people are very active. CryptoAces is one of that ecosystem player that's very active, accommodating this new community. But you see that things are missing. It's still early days. When you go and meet the people, you realize the smartest people on the planet are going there. And that's usually a recipe for success. And uh, in my view, my experience, I have invested 10 years of my life in Switzerland, in Crypto Valley from 2013 till now. And I reflect where is a good opportunity for a lot of entrepreneurs to go and spend the next 10 years of their life. I think UAE is a very good choice. The regulator there, at least when I look at it from a crypto exchange perspective, I've attended a webinar or, or two with the regulators. It also still seems pretty early day, but it seems also very similar to the regime we have in Japan and maybe the regime that Hong Kong is now coming up with, where they're pretty careful in terms of launching the various tokens and so on. It's not like the gates are open and we're doing everything now. It's a deliberate process going step by step and building this ecosystem. Each Emirati has its own regulator. Then you have a lot of free zones in the UAE and they as well can have their own regulators. And then you have the federal regulator and then you have the central bank on the top. So the central bank is like the ultimate regulator. What's happening now in the UAE is a continuation of their vision when it comes to regulatory frameworks over the last couple of years. It's more on the conservative side, actually. What I have learned getting to know the whole ecosystem, this is what was originated in 2018 where the, during the ICO bubble in the previous crypto winter, a lot of scams happened. So literally people on the ground told me that it was very brutal. People were running around selling tokens, raising money from everyone. And there was a lot of disappointment when a lot of these things turned out to be not so promising or just flat out scams. There was a lot of then conservatism, in my view, that resulted out of that. So for the next couple of years, we were not even allowed to go out openly on a conference and mention a token. Even though Dubai and Abu Dhabi have an image that all of the influencers there, of the marketing people there, but you could not mention a token at a conference. This was very strict, actually. This was the vibe how things worked in uh, UAE. And in the last year or so, UAE sees its opportunity to build an ecosystem. This conservative approach is very much present, and it mostly is felt when it comes to retail offerings. You have a couple of crypto startups that are regulated to a certain extent, for instance, by Vara in Dubai, but nobody has a regulatory license that enables you to offer your services to retail investors or retail traders or retail clients. I think this is a very good approach and very slow one, but I think the one that will show dividends in the coming years, to be honest. Anton, I have a question for you regarding your experience in crypto winters. You've been through a few. Just from the feel of this one, in comparison to your past experience and the stage and the cycle, where do you feel that we are at this point? Are we in the middle of the winter? Is it hard to tell because not everyone is completely defeated? What is your take? When it comes to the feel, crypto winters, usually the feel is that it's brutal. And to tell you the way I see it, but also the way a lot of people that I talk to see it is that it's absolutely brutal out there. 
If you had any clients and you still have them now, you're very lucky. Revenues are down across the board really severely and layoffs happened already. If a company didn't do layoffs, then they're completely mad and they should have done layoffs a long time ago to reduce the burn and reduce the cost. This is how it feels. And that's when I reflect on it, we are in a crypto winter. If you ask me where are we in the crypto winter, I would say that we're at the beginning of a crypto winter. And the reason why I say that is because a lot of the challenges and the problems that were in the nucleus of the collapse are still trying to be unwound or resolved. And the big challenge there is the crypto shadow banking ecosystem. All of these big borrowers and lenders that kind of in the back for fueling the bull run, they all blew up, but this is all now being tried to be resolved. And to give you an example, Genesis Global owns to Gemini 900 million. Genesis then wants 1 billion fee. And then, and it's actually Genesis also is seeking a clawback from EX or vice versa. So all of this mess in the back is still being unwound. That's why I claim that we are actually at the beginning. If you ask me, okay, when it will end, obviously it will end when the complete capitulation happens and people net out the losses and say, okay, lost or who gained, nobody gained anything. And I would anticipate that towards mid to end of next year, we're going to maybe see some more happier days. But we have a regulatory challenge, regulatory battle that's happening across the world, but specifically in US. We are seeing headwinds that we have not experienced in any other winter with the overall economy and also the overall banking sector crisis, which is trying to be contained. In some ways, this has not unwound. I think there's more to unwind. But on, on the other hand, I can also see a crypto spring popping out from some of the solutions that can occur from the TradeFi crisis that we haven't yet fully experienced. What is your take on that? I would say this is actually an opportunity for the crypto industry, in a sense that the challenges that you mentioned around the economy not being the world's economy, but also the biggest economy in the world, US, being a bit shaky, and also the challenges that we have firsthand seen in the banking sector and how over-levered it is, both in US, but also around the world and in Switzerland as well, where the second biggest bank, Credit Suisse, blew up over the weekend. This today actually presents an unusual opportunity for the digital asset crypto industry because it allows for a way out from that over-levered system that's slowly breaking down. Today, if you are a high net worth individual or maybe not even uh, an institutional investor, but if you're just an individual who thinks about the future and looks at the risks that are happening and ongoing in the traditional finance, you have to be completely nuts if you're not diversifying towards crypto. Every person today, if it's aware of the challenges in the traditional finance and the traditional banking, if they're not diversifying a little bit towards the digital asset crypto industry in a very safe and secure way, they are then making a great mistake if they're not doing that. We have the infrastructure today to offer people to deploy a small amount of capital or their assets towards crypto. I don't think this will be like a waterfall. This will be more of a drip towards uh, the crypto industry, but a big opportunity for the players who identify this opportunity. Part of the thesis for crypto or the origin of coin was always that the traditional banking system eventually will fail. If there ever was a moment and was what you just mentioned, the Credit Suisse a bankruptcy over the weekend and the takeover over rescue plans with government and UBS. But the traditional markets had their low somewhere in October, right? And since then, we've been
being like melting up. Compared to 15,000, Bitcoin doesn't look that bad, but it was built for this moment of another bank failing and maybe getting a chain reaction, which thankfully we didn't get. For that, just getting to 25 isn't necessarily a strong performance. Maybe the fear was big enough just yet. Arguably, that was a moment where Bitcoin should have risen much more strongly, no? In terms of the price action, even though I, I will not give now predictions where it will go up or down, probably long term up, obviously, that's why what we believe in, right? To provide a little bit more flavor around the markets at the moment is that liquidity since the collapse of FTX has been going down steadily and it's now 50% less than it was prior to FTX collapsing or since the beginning of the year. So liquidity really went down a lot. In addition to that, the volumes and the volatility is going down a lot in the crypto industry. Or at least you look at, for instance, at the Bitcoin prices. Now, usually we have been holding quite well when you consider these two factors in play. But usually this is a prerequisite for a price drop. So if you're asking me, like, how does the price look like? I would say it's looking pretty good. But I would think that in the short term, which is irrelevant if you're a long term focused person when it comes to crypto industry, I think short term, definitely everything is pointing to the downside. Now, if you're asking me, okay, but what are people doing? From my discussions exclusively with professional institutional investors, people are buying on those dips. When the price goes down, people are slowly allocating towards their portfolio. Always in a very balanced way, and it's a small part of their exposure, but they keep on adding cryptos to their portfolio. Obviously, some of those opportunities are a bit challenged because we have ongoing regulatory issues, the biggest crypto exchange in US being targeted by the regulators. So these are some of the challenges when we talk about how to acquire further exposure. But from my discussions, people who have the capital and the means and understand risk management and allocating part of their portfolio towards diversified assets, they are adding their buying crypto. If I think about institutional investment, or I was thinking about derivatives as well. And derivatives market is still very small in crypto. If you take the comparison, cash market versus derivatives in traditional finance. But do you see institutional investors taking positions in derivatives as well? Or is that even less liquidity than in the cash markets? Liquidity in the derivatives, namely perpetual swaps or futures, is actually a lot greater and a lot bigger than in the spot market. So this is something very consistent in the crypto industry, which is the fact as well today. From my experience and from my discussions with professional institutional investors, they're not going long futures or perpetual swaps to get exposure to digital assets or to crypto. So if they actually want to get exposure into Bitcoin, they buy Bitcoins themselves, put them then in cold storage, either with a custodian or is it a hybrid self-custody solution. When professional institutions, when they use derivatives as a part of their investment strategy, they do it in the context of carry trade, meaning that they actually go along the spot and then they short the future if the future is in a contango. And through that, they actually earn yield or returns from a carry strategy. But this is a purely undirectional returns that they're gaining, which is usually complementary to their spot strategy. Especially when we're talking about the Middle East family offices and sovereign wealth funds officially play a big role as investors there. Are they dipping into crypto, even with a small one or two percent allocation of their portfolio? 
from my experience, it's the asset managers, the family offices, and the investors who have a bit more freedom and discretion within their investment mandates are the ones who are investing into digital assets, namely into cryptos. So there is no pension fund out there going and saying, yeah, let's buy Bitcoin because you want to get a good return long term. This is just not happening. Also, from my experience as well, sovereign wealth funds, at least the well-known bigger ones, are really not seeing crypto as a viable investment at the moment with its own challenges and so on. They many times have an indirect exposure through another investment towards crypto, but this is not done actually directly by vehicles that they are managing. So they're not going around and buying Bitcoins on any relevant scale. Let's talk about DAOs for a bit. You had an announcement yesterday, it was very timely. What are the challenges? You say we want to establish a DAO in Switzerland. How does it square in that jurisdiction with the existing legal entity structure that the common law prescribes? How do you establish it? Today, in the crypto industry, DAOs really have an enormous impact on the whole industry and are really important stakeholders in our industry. For instance, MakerDAO, which is a very popular and well-known and pioneering protocol, this DAO has actually one of the biggest treasuries in the crypto industry. The amount of digital assets and cryptos that their treasury holds is enormous. And they, as a stakeholder, due to that, are extremely important for the whole industry. When we talk about that, is then you say, okay, they're extremely important stakeholders, and they're also structured in a way that's in the line with the values of the decentralized future and in line with the values of the crypto industry, meaning that DAOs should be viewed as companies of the future, which are decentralized to full or to a certain extent, and where each token holder of that particular DAO has a stake and has a voice in it. This vision, this future, but also this reality is in stark contrast how companies are managed today. I'm sure a lot of listeners and myself have a lot of experience running companies. And then you're a shareholder of some company. Then you receive a report, maybe quarterly, maybe once per year. You read what's going on. You don't have a lot of saying there. There's a board of directors who is supposed to represent you. You can't even tell who these people are. Why do you even identify with them? How are they representing your interests? How do you have your voice? You basically don't feel as as a shareholder, you really have a strong voice and a strong statement within a company where you're a shareholder. This is the reality, and now we want to actually enable a decentralized future for companies and have DAOs where, hypothetically, every token holder would have a voice in the decision-making process of a DAO. This is like the two realities. When you set up a DAO, and you learn that very quickly, you set up a DAO and you say, okay, we are this decentralized entity in the crypto industry where people are very fond of us, but we also have to operate in the real world. And the real world maybe is not really aligned or doesn't really know how DAOs function or what are the values of a DAO or why is decentralization so important. But at the same time, you have to have a connection with reality. This connection with reality is missing. And that therefore, it's very difficult to set up a DAO that has a connection to the real world and can have benefits from the organizational entities that live in the real world. What happened in the last couple of days where we had the first lawsuit against a DAO, where a DAO called OkiDAO, where the verdict was made by a judge, where they said even if this particular DAO didn't recognize itself as a legitimate entity that grounded in the U.S. laws, the CFTC, which is a U.S. regulator, who sued that DAO actually won in court. 
the judge in California said, look, even though you pretend you're a DAO and that the real world laws don't apply to you, we don't agree with that. You're actually something called an unregistered association and all the liabilities that you thought you could escape are still there and it's a disaster for that particular DAO. The real world is still here. We have to act in line with these laws and regulations and legal matters. What we want to do at Swiss Asset DAO, so this is an initiative grounded here in Switzerland, we want to enable a framework to connect the decentralized entities with the Swiss laws and Swiss legal framework. I'm very excited about this initiative and we have kicked off this initiative to provide this legal framework for DAOs around the world to come into Switzerland and have a legal framework for them that's in line with the values of decentralization, but also gives you the advantages of the real world. That's where it totally makes sense to me because you're breaking the problem down a bit, right? You say we're not establishing DAO for the world as a whole. We're picking one jurisdiction and going to work through this and you've, you've had done this as a community very successfully with crypto otherwise we wouldn't have crypto valley it seems to work in a consensus driven mechanism that switzerland has to talk constructively about these things that problem actually seems solvable right rather than saying we want go through the oecd and get the global framework for DAOs or so that's probably 10 years off i would say yes we are taking a bottom-up approach we are choosing one specific jurisdiction, which is very crypto-friendly, which is Switzerland. And we are trying to find a way how to structure these organizations, these associations, in such a way that you really have the spirit of decentralization, but you have the protection of the legal system, who is there to protect you, actually, right? If you, and you set up an entity. Yeah? And I think this is an amazing opportunity. DAOs are already so important in the crypto industry. They're going to become more important. They're going to be bigger. There's going to be many more of them. And I couldn't be more excited to contribute to this initiative and, and solidify the position of Switzerland as a very crypto-friendly jurisdiction and basically just provide a template for DAOs to come here and set up so that they really have a framework, how they can operate. They have smart contracts all lined up and they need to press a button and they have a full-blown DAO up and running within a very short time period in line with the values of decentralization. The issue ultimately is one of liability. And that's the same as investor protection on crypto as well. As long as everybody behaves well and does what they committed to and, and what they're legally allowed to do, nobody really cares about these things. But the moment things go a bit haywire and you actually have a liability case, then it's like, who's the person to blame? Whom do we throw into jail? And so ultimately in the US you get lawsuits. I think the European approach is a bit more to legislate it upfront. That's what the governments and the regulators are worried about, right? How do we handle it when it blows up? It's the responsibility of us as an industry and as a community that we provide the tools and the ability of the legislators and the regulators to provide the right frameworks. But this is really on us. We need to do the heavy lifting. We are living in line with the values of decentralization, but we need to do the heavy lifting now and provide this framework. It's better to be preemptive in this case. As I mentioned, DAOs, there's going to be more of them. There's going to be a massive opportunity, but it's better to be preemptive and that we provide these frameworks up front and then we all have less headaches later on, as you correctly sure identified. Yeah. Let me go back to the crypto winter once more, because we talked about it from the investment and the trading side. In this whole ecosystem, there's a venture capital component as well. What do you see on the VC side these days? Common wisdom would say that the vintage that starts in the crypto winter would always be a good VC vintage because it takes a few years to mature then. 
Are people investing or is it similar to what you said earlier? Is it just people feel it's just the beginning of winter, we still keep dry powder and, and there will be better opportunity maybe come 2024? Investments into crypto companies are down across the whole board. So just investments are down. And if you are trying to raise capital now, it's orders of a magnitude more difficult to do that today successfully than it was a year ago. There is kind of a hope around very early stage deals. So if you're actually looking at pre-seed deals, some of the investments are happening there. If you invest now into a pre-seed deal, this company will come out with a product or will have anything useful within two, three years, which we can anticipate that at that point will be out of that struggle of a crypto winter that we are experiencing now. But if you're looking a bit further out, like Seed Plus, Series A and further, it's brutal out there. It's very difficult to raise money. And if you do, valuations are down a lot. The terms are not really that accommodative as they were a year ago. That is a very difficult situation. But now the question is, okay, but why are people not investing? Is it just due to the crypto winter? And what I see happening is that the funds, the VCs, they're having a hard time getting capital. And that's why they're now investing a lot less into the startups themselves because they are not able to raise capital. So they're not able to get capital from their limited partners, from their LPs. Therefore, it's less in, uh, capital going into the startups. And you have some data uh, that validates that, that shows that the crypto VCs in the first six months of this year, they raised capital from their uh, limited partners equivalent to 2019. So they're really struggling a lot to raise capital. If you look at the way VCs raise money, they have something called capital calls. You have people who've committed to investing to a fund. Every quarter or six months, you have a capital call where you tell them, I need 10 million for my investments, and then they chip in, and then you deploy that capital. And you see actually that the capital calls are having less money allocated from the limited partners. Yes, it's very difficult. Startups are getting a lot less money invested. But the reason for that is because the VCs are having a hard time getting money from their investors. Plain and simple. Not much good news there either. What really changed the VC game? You always got a premium simply because you tie up your capital for an extended period of time. And arguably that warrants a higher return. If you have a good VC that you're investing as a limited partner, the tokens in crypto change that equation a bit. Because if you look at Andreessen Horowitz, they've been very aggressive in much earlier selling tokens and making their investment back than the equity investment would ever had made any return. There, there were some cynical comments, I think, with the announcement of A16Z opening a, a London office now exactly at the time that the regulators in the US are clamping down a bit. Do you view the London move of them also in the context of the regulatory pressure in, in the US and looking a more for a more accommodating jurisdiction? UK is definitely one of the more open-minded jurisdictions when it comes to crypto than some other ones in the world. So it definitely is also not a crypto paradise <laughs> as I, in my experience. And so I would say if you would ask me maybe why is the reason that they're opening up in a different jurisdiction in UK, I think part of it is diversification from on the business side, but also from a regulatory perspective. But from my point of view, I would not add too much value to it. I don't anticipate UK tomorrow to become the most crypto friendly place in the world just because it is a long process 
We need to build a lot of infrastructure to enable that. And this is, we're just far away from that. But on the other side, you know, coming from traditional finance is where the capital is, you know, a lot of it actually. So it's, uh, you know, from a strategic perspective, it's very good to have a presence there, but it's more on the limited partner side and not necessarily deep in the crypto industry from my perspective. Got it. Thank you. That's good color too. Last question on the VC side, when you go into the Web3 space, it just becomes so much more technical than Web2 that to be a successful VC, you actually need to be technical. So typically the more successful ones in this space then would be former CTOs or former founders also of, of crypto ventures, etc. Do you see that similarly? Is there a shift to a more technical VC rather than a VC that comes from the finance side? Today, if you want to be a successful VC, crypto VC, you really need to understand what you're investing in. And today you're investing into technology or even to be more specifically, you're investing into infrastructure. So that means we are so early into the days of the crypto industry that all the things that are being built now on successfully is infrastructure. So if you want to compare that in the Internet, that would be like investing into 80s and 90s. There was no applications, there was no website, there was no apps, right? It was only infrastructure, what you were investing in. So we are in the same scenario now in the crypto industry, where most of the time you're investing in nothing to the application layer, you're investing in the infrastructure layer. And there to make sound judgments and sound investments, you really need to know about technology. And, and also what is it that the people are building and how this will add value to the whole ecosystem. And this is my experience with the VCs that I have been in contact with and worked with who are very successful, very good in my view, are they really had people who really knew the technology aspect very well and could make judgment calls and help you as well in your way of building a product. So I think you said this absolutely perfectly, but also I think what you said reflects where we are in the crypto industry very early. Most of the investments are not on the application layer, but on the infrastructure layer. Right. The other thing we always talk about is mass adoption. Northeast Asia is a bit NFT crazy, and that's maybe culturally or what people spend their time on in terms of gaming. It seems to be a natural propensity to accepting NFT as a thing and as a thing of value. But clearly we see it in other places too. Louis Vuitton had this 40,000 euro NFT that gives you certain rights. There was a recent announcement of Nike doing stuff with EA Sports. It goes into gaming again. What's your overall take on the NFT space? And while the rest is crypto winter, is it an avenue maybe that might be pulling us out into something a bit more springy? I'm really fascinated with NFTs. And I have been buying NFTs for quite some time now, for quite a few years. And I have to say also, and I experienced it as a user, I have to say beyond the marketplaces where you can buy and sell NFTs on a very speculative basis, there isn't much out there at the moment. And I have to say maybe like the equivalent of the ICO bubble that we had in 2017 and 18, then the last bull run that happened a year ago, the equivalent of that was NFTs. People are literally selling pictures or JPEGs for thousands and thousands of dollars with zero utility, zero added value, zero use cases. This just and didn't add up. And today I think you have kind of a outcome of all of that, that they all, a lot of these NFTs collections that didn't, have, didn't add a lot of value. But this was where the spotlight was. So I would put that part on the side and say this will die and it will not work and we're done with that. Now, what you're actually referring to is something that has a lot more potential is about how can 
established brands leverage Web3 technology, particularly NFTs, for community or client engagement, actually. And I think there are a couple of very interesting attempts going in that direction. But when I take a closer look at that, what I really feel is that the infrastructure in the back, so literally means like wallets, apps, and tools that I can interact with these NFTs, they're not at the level where an established brand would need it or or should have it, actually. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a disconnect between the two at the moment. So yes, maybe I can buy an expensive NFT from Louis Vuitton, but then if I don't have the right wallet on my phone and it will not work, and then it's not an Ethereum, but it's on Arbitrum. And then if I don't have the right token, nothing will move. And then you have a headache. So we need to close that gap. And I know quite a few companies are working on that to close that gap. But I think also it's very brave for all of these established brands to venture into the crypto industry. I know that before nobody wanted to touch tokens from established brands because it was too speculative. But apparently speculative NFTs are not <laughs> too, too uh, difficult for established brands. Just very interesting to see that. I think we are a bit far out from that, to be honest, actually. I've run my list of questions to the ground. All that's left is to thank Anton as always for his insights. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. There's lots going on the second half of the year. Hopefully we see you sometime out in Asia as well. Really a pleasure to talk to you again, to continue our friendship and hope to see you soon in person as well. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.